0: Belief in UFOs is increasing. UFO-related programming is increasing too, especially within settings that ostensibly offer information about real events, like the National Geographic Channel and the History Channel. Increasingly, this fictionalized programming about UFOs is being interspersed with productions about historical and real events. Brad Dancer, National Geographic's Senior Vice President for Audience and Business Development, recently acknowledged that companies like his might play a role in bolstering UFO belief. Speaking about National Geographic's recent publicity campaigns, he said, We were trying to have a little fun and see if pop culture references have had an impact on people's beliefs. Hollywood may have contributed to the belief, as movies portraying aliens become increasingly convincing, they may subconsciously affect people's attitudes. In a poll, National Geographic asked its audiences what they believed the world would be like if extraterrestrials were real. Respondents thought that The X-Files was the best representation of what actual UFOs and aliens would be like. The public chose this program for the same reasons that The X-Files is exemplary of this trend. The show is an account of a systemic and systematic government cover-up of the reality of UFOs and extraterrestrials. Is it fictional? to the extent that there have been such government cover-ups of purported UFO events, it is not. Declassified documents have revealed that several governments, including those of the United States and the United Kingdom, have indeed covered up and managed information about reported UFO events. The 1953 Robertson Panel, which was the impetus for Project Blue Book, suggested a media campaign to manage public perception of the phenomena. Significantly, the report recommends the very kinds of strategies used by the screenwriters of The Conjuring, the student producers of The Blair Witch Project, and Grace Hill Media's marketers. That is, the use of documentary-style techniques and authoritative experts to help mold public perceptions. The X-Files mimics real life in a way that is much more powerful than The Conjuring partly due to the fact that The X-Files was a weekly television series that ran for almost 10 years, from 1993 to 2002, the loglines of The X-Files invited spectators to consider that the truth is out there, and more important, that it was okay to admit, I want to believe. This latter logline juxtaposed with the image of a flying saucer became one of the most popular memes of the 1990s and 2000s. The memes incorporate a fundamental belief that there is other intelligent life in the universe with a concomitant recognition of doubt, thus brilliantly preserving the potential believer's credibility and sidestepping the issue recognized by Jung, that no sensible person would admit to belief in UFOs. Belief in the possibility of extraterrestrial life, however, is another thing altogether. Apparently that belief seems much more sensible. Video and media productions about UFOs use techniques that foster belief by creating realistic-appearing images and scenarios in the very sense that Zach's warned about and that Brad Dancer referenced when he said that movies portraying aliens are becoming increasingly convincing. How could that be? An alien has never been found that we know of, so how could production companies make a product that is convincing? And just who is being convinced? My ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people, welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I am joined by the Catholic guilt-ridden duo, Jay and Nick. Hey, that's just Jay. Yeah, it is. <laughs> my guilt is perfectly secular. And on this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in. Buckle up and prepare for a walk on the Midnight Roads of Noctivagant. And we're back. Hello. Hi! Hi! Jesus, you guys are supposed to say something. I, sorry. I, I'm sorry. I'm like, sorry. Well, because right then, we were
1: uh, goofing off and singing not our theme music.
0: Yeah, that's and true. And
1: right as you started the episode, my brain had decided to venture off into imagining that we just cold open an episode instead of playing our theme music. It's just us singing off-key. We're all singing something completely different. <laughs>
0: that might be a fun April Fool's joke. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But make sure they don't see it coming. Do it in November.
0: <laughs> so it's just us completely losing our mind.
1: Is that really that different from most episodes of the show?
0: No, I mean, I guess the more that we do this, the more uh, it just appears like we're losing our minds.
1: I, I feel like there is a piece of my, me that never leaves this basement. Like in the bottom of my soul, I'm always down here in some some regard.
0: Yeah.
2: My feet are so cold. Yeah. Uh. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Oh, yes. But- we're entering
1: the winter months, which means this is going to become an icebox, which is going to be a great sociological experiment as our listeners at home get to listen as Jay and Rory become increasingly unhappy and I sound increasingly comfortable.
0: Yeah, I, uh, that's why I have a heater over here. So that because I spend so much time down here, I, I have to find ways to keep myself at least somewhat warm. And by that I mean it's the right side of my body that stays warm, and the left side freezes.
1: You're like a gas station rotisserie chicken.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I guess I am. One side, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah, okay. Well, uh, so what are we talking about today? Uh, it's a book.
1: Yeah, we are reading *American Cosmic* by D. W. Pasulka. I think it's Pasulka.
0: Pasulka. 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 Yeah, I think that's it. Pasulka.
1: all right. Yeah. Uh, and this book, um, this book caused a, uh, caused a late night staring at the ceiling session. So it gives my star of approval.
0: Yeah, I would say uh, I, I'll put this top five right uh, now. Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, this book yeah. is being considered, at least from what I've seen around on the Internet, somewhat of a modern classic in, yeah. in terms of ufology. It's it's more recent than some of the other you know classics we've read, like Operation Trojan Horse, uh, Passport to Begonia. But holy crap, some of the ideas and perspectives she takes in here were very fresh yeah. in regards to what we've encountered so far within the body of ufological
0: literature. And I'll say, I'll say this, uh, when choosing this book, I had no idea that it even, I mean, like I assumed just based on it that there were people that have read it, obviously. Yeah. But I had no idea that it was even remotely as impactful as uh, it likely is to some of the more modern researchers that are out there right now. I mean, I I can see why. Um, oh yeah, I'm mean, just looking at the the people that she references in the book alone that she worked with while writing this. Uh, like the main, not like not the main person that she uh, worked with, but somebody that she worked with heavily and is uh, very clearly inspired so much of this book was Jacques Vallee. So, yeah.
1: No, absolutely. Um, so what this book is, uh, so D.W. Pasulka, she is not a ufologist. She's not a physicist. I guess technically. Anyone can be a ufologist if they appoint themselves it where well, there's no no degree process, but uh regardless, she is an academic theologian, uh, with a specific focus in Catholicism. And this book is her looking at the UFO uh phenomenon from that perspective, and I'm I'm sure we're gonna get into her findings, but it mm-hmm. is the it is fascinating, this idea of the emerging the emergence of a new world religion being represented in UFOs. Yes,
0: it is um Absolutely fascinating. And what I find even slightly fascinating about it, and we'll get into this a little bit, is how much of some of what she talks about we have talked about on the show, not necessarily from the same perspective or thought, but we've mentioned a lot of these ideas, just never really connected some of the, the 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 dots that she did in the same way at least i think so. Well
1: absolutely On, there were some sections in this book where funnily enough i was reading it and i thought it sounded like something jay would ramble Yes at no absolutely just with less f bombs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh i'm i'm curious um don't dive too far into this Uh, because you'll get an opportunity to, uh, say a little bit more in the first question. And I apologize. You guys didn't get them ahead of time, but this week, these last couple weeks have been absolutely crazy for me. We're going in blind. Yep. So I, and I think, you know, maybe that'll make it a little bit more interesting. Who knows? But Jay specifically, I'm curious, um, like I said, without going too in depth with it, but what was your overall impression of the approach? that she took when doing this.
2: I think she took the best approach she possibly could have from my like obviously I'm I'm much less educated than she is in this particular in this particular field. I only have a bachelor's degree, but um t- there's not a ton of precedent for actively observing a religion as it is beginning to develop. All of my experience has been, you know, basically retrospective studying religions that have been around for Mm -hmm. hundreds of years, minimum ufology as it is emerging as a new cult, the UFO cult. This is, this is new. This is late. This is mid to late 20th century going now into the early 21st century. And it's only been quite recent that kind of mainstream academia has started going like, no, this is a religion. This isn't a cultural craze. This isn't just a bunch of weird conspiracy theorists. this is a religion, and we need to start approaching it as a religion mm. and i'm very I'm very glad that she was able to approach it with the kind of amount of respect and care that she actually did, yeah, because as we've seen in both the sciences in both like the physical sciences and in the humanities slash social sciences, there's been a lot of dismissal around kind of our area of study particularly UFOs and I'm just I'm I'm thrilled that it's being taken seriously like this because I've observed that myself of this is th- this is a faith this is a because for me personally religion just feels like the theoretical framework with which uh, people analyze the universe that they're interacting with mm-hmm. so of course ufology f- falls under the definition of religion. It is the theoretical framework with which these people approach the universe.
0: Right. No, that's a good point. Absolutely. So uh, with that, are we uh, ready to jump into the summary?
2: Yes.
1: Take me away.
0: All right. When it comes to the UFO phenomenon, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone better to talk to than Jacques Vallée. For our author, she not only got to work with Vallée, but as told in the preface of this book, she was taken on a tour of Silicon Valley by the man himself, from the history of the valley to its science-fueled democracy that it has become. She spends time talking about Vallée's accomplishments, something of which we here at Noctivigant are familiar, and she compares Jacques to an essay called The Question Concerning Technology by Martin Heidegger. In this, the essay argues that humanity doesn't understand the essence of technology that we are blinded by the view of it solely as an instrument. Quote, The Greek temple for the gods, housed by the gods, and as such it was a sacred frame. Similarly, the medieval cathedral embodied and housed the presence of God for medieval Europeans. Heidegger suggested that the human relationship with technology is religious-like, that it is possible for us to have a non-instrumental relationship with technology and engage fully that it really is a saving power. Technology brings with it a new era of humanity, and Pasolka argues that the UFO is that symbol. Quote, This book is about contemporary religion, using as a case study the phenomenon known as the UFO. It is also about technology. These may seem completely unrelated topics, but they are intimately connected. They are connected because social and economic infrastructure shape the way in which people practice religions. A historical and uncontroversial example is the impact of the printing press on the Christian tradition. The mass production of Bibles in the common languages of the people soon gave rise to the doctrine of sola scriptura, or scripture alone, according to which scripture is the only reliable and necessary guide for Christian faith and practice, a foundational principle of the Protestant Reformation. As technologies shift, infrastructures, religious practice, and habits are changed. Additionally, this is about how we have come to see technology as something akin to a sacred object, that technology itself is a means of moving towards a divine future. At the same time, many in theological circles have framed technology as the beast or the antichrist. In this book, while being academic, is also a story, a story of Pasolka interacting with other like-minded and some non-academics who study the phenomenon. When Posolko began research in 2012, she had inherited a library of texts, case studies, and contact reports from Dr. Brenda Densler. This included data from MUFON, KUFOS, and the works of notable authors in the field such as Alan Hynek, Jacques Vallée, John Keel, Bud Hopkins, John Mack, Jeffrey Kripal, Whitley Strieber, and more. She learned quickly that there are, essentially, two types of players in the UFO field of research, those that study it, engage, and interact with this supposedly non-human intelligence, and the other are those who interpret, spin, produce, and market the UFO events to the general public. While the first group is silent, the second is anything but, and the second group is often the source of hoaxes or misinformation. And all of this stemmed from her writing a book on Catholic doctrine of purgatory and discussing the lights, spinning suns, and the other off-phenomenon that she found within it. She ended up at a UFO conference. Some of these experiencers that she met there, oddly, or not, described some of the things that she had seen in this same purgatory research. To her, this then begs the question, could the orbs that we once saw as souls be the same thing as the lights that we now think of as UFOs? And then, in meeting with some of these scientists who studied experiencers and the phenomenon, she found that she was unable to discount the data that she was seeing or the social influence of phenomena seemed to have. Quote, My association with the scientists brought about something that Harvard UFO researcher John Mack called epistemological shock, that is, a shock to my fundamental understanding of the world and the universe. And this occurred on two levels, the first being that well-regarded scientists were telling her that non-human intelligence originated in space. The second level was discovering how the findings of these scientists had been warped to form UFO mythology. It was hard to remain aloof when confronted by what I knew to be misinformation, some created as disinformation, some created for the sole reason that it sells. I was so embedded in the research, on the one level of observing the scientists and on another of being involved with the producers of media content, that it was impossible to be neutral. It was at this point that I felt myself fall headlong into Nietzsche's abyss, stare into it, and see it grin mockingly back at me. Now, typically speaking, religious scholars don't assess the truth of religious claims or the metaphysics that may lay behind them. Instead, they focus on the social effects of those beliefs. The core idea here being that belief in UFOs is an entirely different phenomenon than the UFOs themselves and the belief of the masses does not rely on objective reality. Pasolka believes that she is seeing the formation of a new, unique form of religion in UFOs. She observed the emergence of a dynamic global belief system and began to record the mechanisms of how and why people believed and how they put that belief into practice. So, how is it religious? This is a great question, and it all starts with contact. Religion is often predicated on contact with what are seen as some sort of supernatural beings, often coming from the sky and shining with brilliant lights. These contact events, think like Betty and Barney Hill, Woody, or even Mary, are the moment that spawn belief and interpretations. These beliefs and interpretations start to develop and spread into communities, and then different interpretations spark different communities like different religious denominations. These then spawn organizations based on those interpretations. One thing that we must keep in mind, at least academically, is what the contact events are themselves, is not a religious or even a UFO event in it of itself. They become a religious or UFO event, or both, depending upon your interpretation of the event. Quote, The interpretive process goes through stages of shaping and sometimes active intervention before it is solidified as a religious event, a UFO event, or both. The various types of belief in UFOs can be traced as cultural processes that develop both spontaneously and intentionally within layers of popular culture and through purposive institutional involvement. And this idea that the UFO phenomenon and religion may be intertwined is not necessarily a new concept. We've talked about it here before when we covered Passport to Magonia, when we've talked about Carl Jung, and Valais and others have noted that the UFO event follows many patterns similar to folklore and other religious traditions. And this is, essentially, what we plan to explore today through the lens of her book. But, before we meet the cast of characters that we have, we have our first discussion question. So, we're not even into chapter 1 yet, and I want us to stop here for a second because I want to reflect on our thoughts prior to this book. So where did you stand on the idea of the UFO phenomenon as kind of a, uh, a religious movement or even having a similar societal impact in comparison to things like Scientology, the Nation of Islam, and other more modern religious movements?
1: Um. Well, okay, so I... I already had the idea in my head that there was a religious element to the UFO phenomenon. And I'm not talking about the actual manifestation or whatever it might suggest about the cosmos or reality or any of that. Uh, But specifically in how people treat it. I mean, because if you look out there, there are very clear, uh, I guess, factions of belief within ufology Yeah. Uh, at the broadest level. You have nuts and bolts versus woo, but you get down to it. Uh, there's human-initiated contact, the mm-hmm. or CE5, or Mission Rama, and all of those have slightly different protocols, which you could interpret as different methods of prayer uh, with which to it directly invoke these ET slash gods or spirits or whatever, what have you.
0: Absolutely, especially when most of the techniques involve guided meditation.
1: Yeah. Now, I will say that what this book did for me, though, is it broadened i guess in my head the meaning of there is a ufo religion because i realized while reading this i mean even even in my position i've read a lot of ufo books i'm very open to a lot of the stranger interpretations of the phenomenon um yet there was i realized there was still a part of me that was still kind of on some level thinking of nuts and bolts or et you know extraterrestrials from another planet as kind of like the baseline interpretation Mm -hmm. uh that that you build from you build on or you eventually move from the deeper you get into ufology and yes that that's largely true from a pop culture perspective uh but it made me realize that i wasn't thinking really of that as as the same as a religious belief and ultimately it is because what is sitting at the core of the phenomenon is an ultimate mystery we 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 still do not Really know anything about what we're dealing with outside of some vague suggestions of what it might be capable of, but because we don't know what we're looking at, we can't trust anything it shows us or says or information people get downloaded into their head because we can't verify the source um and and it it, it it that was part of uh the the part of this book that stuck with me was that idea that ultimately. No matter what your interpretation is of the UFO phenomenon, it is fundamentally a religious belief. Um, and that unfortunately, I that, mean that even goes as far as experiencers who had an experience that they believe gave them a very clear idea of uh, you know, what this phenomenon is those individuals are still basically building a worldview off of what was innately a religious or spiritual experience.
0: Yeah. If anything, those are the most religious of them.
1: Yeah. It, I it mean, I mean, I couldn't blame them. I, yeah. I come back to if I was if I was in the back if I was in the backyard and the Sumerian goddess of 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 nature came out to me and said, Hey Nick, I'm 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 so and so. I don't remember the name of the God actually. I don't know why I picked that bad example, but uh, <laughs> I'm so and so. I would be really hard pressed to not think, yeah. I just met the goddess so and so. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, again, and I mean, to my extension, going back to what we've talked about, where if long-haired Venusians show up at your door and say, "Hi, I'm from Venus," uh, are you gonna tell them no? Like, what? What <laughs> right. other interpret? I mean, it would be very tough to resist coming to a a, a religion or a be- religious belief about that based off that interaction.
0: Right. Yeah. J.
2: Yeah, before this I was pretty thoroughly in the camp of this is a religion just because um fun fact from an academic perspective there is not a definition of religion not one that's been universally accepted by academics uh much like art and obscenity uh we have to operate off of a bit of you know it when you see it mm. mentality And the problem with that is uh, people can argue with it and people can. So, yeah, there are occasionally very heated academic debates over whether or not something is a religion. Buddhism gets yanked back and forth pretty frequently over whether or not it is a religion. Hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah. uh, Because a lot of Buddhists don't believe in praying to Buddha. Right. Yeah. It's uh for it's often a lot of people attempt to argue that it is more of a philosophy. I feel that Buddhism is thoroughly a religion, I frequently believe that calling it a philosophy is uh rooted in anti Asian racism, but I'm not gonna go into that right now. But uh yes, I was pretty thoroughly in the camp of ufology being a religion or at least headed in that direction. Because of the sheer amount of importance that it is, that it takes up in a lot of believers' lives mm-hmm. and the profound psychological and spiritual changes that a lot of contactees undergo, it, the level of impact and the level of influence that it holds over people's souls and minds to me puts it in the camp of being religious
0: yeah i would agree i think uh i was pretty uh i i i believe that there was at least religious aspects to the ufo phenomenon um and all of this just because so much of what we've explored leading up to this is felt so spiritual so uh uh like so religious in its way and then the people get so defensive both sides of it that it is it's almost like the atheist v christian debates that i used to be a part of in high school you know yeah Yeah. It, it like it felt so similar to that that it was like i can't not see that you know and so yeah of course i felt that there was a religious aspects to the phenomenon for sure What I liked about this book is that it drew comparisons that I didn't necessarily think about, you know, um, and we'll get into it. I'm not going to dive into that right now, but I I liked your guys' answers and we're all pretty much on the same page and that's kind of what I expected, but I think reflection is good. But is there anything else that you guys like to say on this one before we jump into the next section?
1: Nope. I, I just want to point out, I think it is, and we, we might be getting to this a little later, but I guess building off beyond how people react to it, the mechanics of the spiritual experience are we, we are weirdly similar. Like yeah. We, we, we yes. talked about you know people's reaction to an alien abduction are roughly the same long-term as those to an NDE right. or those to having an awakening to your inner mindscape or to being visited by an angel. Largely speaking, we react to encounters with the other in a very predictable way. And I just find that fascinating.
0: Yeah. And there's so many, uh, and I like that in this, she talks about how so much of this is based upon our own individual interpretation. And I think that's huge because that is one of the biggest things that I didn't necessarily think about because it's like, you see all those people out there, man, I see them all the time on Twitter going off about their, their individual belief. And part of me is sitting there like, um, you know, would either discount it or shrug it off, whatever. But ultimately it's like, this is for a lot of these people, this is their whole fucking life, you know, is this belief and this idea and this interpretation. And, uh, ultimately who's to say that that's wrong.
1: Yeah. I well, I mean, it, it's similar to any religious belief, right? I mean, in the sense of you can't you're never going to sit down a true believer and talk them out of it. Right. And in fact, they're going to get real mad at you. And in my opinion, justifiably, people are allowed to believe what they want to believe as long as it's not hurting anyone.
0: Right. Yep. No, I agree. I agree.
1: But yeah, I think I I just wanted to throw that in because that was something that uh, has been sticking with me. We can keep going.
0: Yeah, no, I like it. All right. In the next two chapters, we meet the other two main people that Pasolka worked with throughout this book, Tyler and James. Setting the stage for what is to come, we cut to Pasolka and James. We'll get to him more in a little bit. But they are being blindfolded for a 40-minute car ride to somewhere New Mexico. This was not Area 51, but some other sacred place that was, in fact, also under a no-fly zone where, according to their guide, Tyler, Pieces of a UFO that had crashed in 1947 could be found. Quote, I called this the sacred place because it marked the location where it is believed that non-human intelligence revealed itself to humans. In my field, the word that describes this kind of event is hierophany. A hierophany is a manifestation of the sacred. It occurs when a non-human intelligent being descends from the sky to the ground or otherwise reveals itself. The burning bush that Moses witnessed on Mount Sinai, as recorded in the Bible, is a classic example of a hierophany. Pisulca was here to document how this secret location operated as a sacred location to some, particularly to those two scientists. And who are these two fine gentlemen, you ask? Well, one is James Master, a scientist and professor from a major university he was here in the hopes of finding proof that there was a craft that did indeed crash at this site. The other was Tyler, their host, who believed this to be one of the most significant locations in human history. When they arrived, Tyler prepared two metal detectors and a map which he claimed showed where the craft had landed. Quote, he said that when the crash occurred in 1947, the government had taken the craft, hidden it away in a secret location, and disguised the area with tin cans and debris to prevent others from finding any remaining artifacts. And though the area was indeed littered with tin cans, which is absurd on its own but curious to any Hellier fans, Tyler had accounted for this, and the metal detectors that he had were calibrated specifically to look for these artifacts. Before getting started, though, Pasolka mentioned to Tyler that a nearby mesa looked familiar. And he explained that this was not surprising, as it was seen in the opening episode of the final season of The X Files. And this oddly struck a nerve. Of course, this place was already mythologized, and of course, someone writing on that show knew of this location and it projected it to millions of people. At this point, to her at least, the objective truth of this location didn't matter, because this place being sacred and having a deeper meaning behind it was already true for millions of people. Through media. So now, regardless of the validity of it, this place was a big deal, and it was potentially ground zero of a new religion. But before we get into what, if anything, that they found, let's talk about how they got here. A few months prior, Pasolka had organized a small conference on the phenomenon, to which Tyler had not been invited. It was a small, closed meeting between ufologists and scientists with the goal of comparing notes. What they found, however, was that the codes of conduct for academic scholarship was much different from those which governed professional ufologists. Academic codes of conduct demanded transparency. They reveal their sources as a matter of practice. Ufologists' scientists, however, work the opposite way. They are often made to agree to conceal their sources and are not allowed by their employers to discuss their research at all due to, quote, national security. And naturally, this led to a metric shitload of tension between the two groups. This tension eventually led to one attendee interrupting a speaker to no end and erupting into an argument that Pasolka eventually had to shut down. The argument stemmed from both people knowing classified information that they had taken an oath to not reveal, something that no one else present even knew. The day after the conference, she got a call from Tyler, who wanted to take her to a special place in New Mexico where she could learn more about the physical dimensions of the phenomenon. She was dubious and, despite Tyler's objections, insisted that she would not go alone. She wished to take her research partner, James, with her. And while he was hesitant at first, he eventually relented and agreed to take James as well.
1: Uh, Sidebar, when you're going onto the Midnight Roads, bringing a buddy is recommended.
0: Yes. Yes, indeed.
2: We should open up a merch store and we should sell, like, little vampire or, like, zombie plushies, and we should label them as buddies you can take on the midnight (laughs) roads. Aw.
0: I like that idea.
1: And they're just handcuffs. so you can handcuff a friend to you and drag him into the graveyard.
2: Yeah, that's what that's for.
0: Well, Tyler, an employee of the space industry that may or may not be NASA, is what Pasolka calls a meta-experiencer. These are people who study experiencers and studied them scientifically. Pasolka was dubious of Tyler at first, as he was a government agent, so I get it. But as she learned about him, she warmed up to him. One of his mentors had been Judith Resnick, who had died in the Challenger explosion. He said that he believed Resnick had known that the shuttle would explode, and he discussed personally witnessing the explosion and the deep chasm of grief that had opened inside of him. He explained in detail the pain of that day. And after the Challenger explosion, he dove further into his work, and eventually his wife left him, and he ended up hospitalized with heart palpitations. At this point, he was a pure skeptic towards the phenomenon. But then, someone left a book with no title or cover in his office, and it turned out to be Carl Sagan's book on the cosmos and space travel. As he read it, he found himself finally able to settle enough to sleep. He began reading it every night, with Sagan's words helping to put the universe and the cosmos into perspective. From here, he began contemplating leaving the space program. But before he could, a general came into his office looking for proposals for experiments to perform on the next shuttle, the Columbia. Tyler immediately had an idea, or maybe a memory, of an experiment to test if a non-charged material could speak with a charged material in zero gravity. He knew it would work intuitively, but the general disagreed, citing that Tyler had no PhD to his name. So Tyler went and got somebody with a PhD to help with the experiment, though even he thought that it would not work. But to everyone but Tyler's surprise, it did. And a few days later, Tyler and the professor were summoned to Washington, D.C., where they were led into a basement. Then they were sat down with a few people who had witnessed the experiment some guards and a two star general, and the general demanded to know who came up with the idea and the professor immediately signaled Tyler out. The general pissed off, demanded to know where Tyler got the idea, and Tyler insisted that it was a memory, not a thought, but a memory to which the general thought he was an idiot and sent Tyler away the next week. Tyler was, however, awarded with a plaque a patent, and five hundred dollars. Wow, wow. Wow. From here, Tyler decided to go into business using his memory for good. He created patent after patent with these memories, racking up a fortune, but eventually growing bored. This led to him thinking that he should go back to the space program. And like before, the universe seemed to agree. As he was coming to this realization, he was approached by two men while he was in an airport who asked if he wanted to come back. Quote, When Tyler returned to the program, things had changed. He explained that he was now connected to a source that he believed was part of an off-planet intelligence. He felt that it had been with him since a few months after he saw the Challenger explode. And he was sent to work in a special facility at the Space Center, where the next step in the growing knowledge of off-planet phenomenon began. He wasn't shown or read into anything, but he believed that in that place he was in close proximity with something that emitted a type of energy or frequency which altered how he thought. And then, quoting from Tyler here on the program, he said, quote, In the program, I started to find myself on jobs where I interface directly with the phenomenon. I know its language, it does speak to us in space. I don't know who is responsible for putting me on these jobs, and I think that somehow they are responsible for it. My own direct boss, doesn't know what I do. This is how the program works. And the biomedical technologies that have come from this are nothing short of remarkable. One example involves a material that had been etched at the molecular level that the human bone reads as itself. It's then incorporated into diseased bone or tissue to help the body recuperate. Eventually, Pasolka decided that she wanted to meet Tyler. Her own research into the U.S. and Russian space programs had supported some of what Tyler was saying about these programs, though any of the NASA employees that she interviewed prior either didn't know or didn't want to talk about it. This history being that, while most people that work for these organizations now don't believe in extraterrestrial life, the founders of both the Russian and American space programs did. Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, regarded as the founding father of rocketry and aeronautics, believed that ethereal beings or non-human intelligence were trying to communicate with humans through symbols. And Jack Parsons would be an American equivalent. As evidenced by people like Tyler, something stranger than simply advanced technology was happening here. This was a fusion of magic and technology. Tyler worked invisibly, sending technology without declaring what he was doing or where the ideas were coming from, which somehow seemed to contribute to his success. Eventually, they agreed to meet in Atlanta at a conference for the American Academy of Religion. They met at a diner, Pasolka having brought a friend, Jeff Kripal, to accompany her. When Tyler showed up in his Gucci suit, he won them over with his charisma. And after having a meal at the Ritz, Tyler explained to them his protocol for connecting to off-planet intelligence. The protocol was physical and mental, and Pasolka reminded her of traditions like yoga or meditation. In many sacred traditions, physical action is taken alongside mental effort to achieve connection to the divine, believing, essentially, that our DNA is a receptor and transmitter that works at a certain frequency. And Tyler believes that it is the same frequency that we use to communicate with satellites in deep space and he spoke of his own download experiences and his own personal practices that he utilizes to almost encourage these downloads and other synchronicities to happen. These range from meditation to what he calls an 8 plus 1 sleep routine and then getting sunlight every day. Heather Berlin, a neurologist at the Eichen School of Medicine on Mount Sinai, analyzed the creative mind and found support for the idea that creative individuals experience innovative ideas as external to themselves. What this means is essentially that the whole in the creative state, the self-awareness, or sense of self is suppressed, which is a similar brain state to when we dream or undergo hypnosis or meditation, which is fascinating. Now, back in the desert, we find James yelling for Tyler and Pasolka to come to him, when they ran over, James showed them a small, metallic object that had been identified as an artifact by the unique metal detectors. And as any good scientist, they photographed and bagged the specimen and continued searching around, finding mostly normal metal. But as they neared a mesa, the detector began to beep. They found a large, metallic piece, the first of several that they would collect over the course of the day. James ended up taking all of the pieces to analyze and went to the airport and back to their now slightly less than normal lives. So who is this James character? Well, like Tyler, he is a scientist. But he's also a bit of a believer himself. He's an inventor that has a reputation for pushing the boundaries of science and biotechnology. James is also an experiencer. He has memories from around five or six when he remembered little people appearing in his room or bedroom windows while he was paralyzed on the bed. And more of these events going into his teens and then into his thirties. But James was a pioneer in his field, doing what others deemed impossible. Between his science and his experience, he was uniquely suited to launch an investigation into the phenomenon. But after surveying his colleagues to find that none had experiences or were even familiar with the works of, like Jacques Valet he struggled to find a community to work with for peer-reviewed analysis. He came up with a daring plan. He decided to put himself on the map, to out himself publicly as being interested in the phenomenon. He began by reaching out about a spectacular case. Some recently found material that was claimed to be of alien origin. James said that he could determine the truth of this claim. His plan proved to be a good idea and a bad idea. James contacted a ufologist that, like I said, had a supposed alien relic, and they agreed to let him examine it. It did look anomalous, but as he studied it, and the ufologist filmed it for a documentary, he concluded that it was from Earth. But these conclusions were not what was shown in the film. His findings were presented in a way to imply that it was of alien origin. But he tried to clear the air by publishing some statements in some high profile science publications. And, of course, those science publications were happy to oblige. But needless to say, this man was entrenched in the UFO world. He worked with other scientists to try and study those that had contact experiences, downloads, and more. Quote, His research found that some people exhibited knowledge of events for which they should not, according to what we know about normal processes of acquiring information. He could not explain this, but he relied on quantum theory to suggest that particles distant from each other seem to have knowledge of each other and even affect each other. And scientists don't know why this is. He suggested that perhaps there is a quantum field of information and somehow his subjects tap into it. He believed that genes are partly to blame in determining if how someone can tap into this field. He also claimed that once an individual has been contacted, the phenomenon leaves a sort of traceable physical signature in the subject's physiology, one which science can identify and track. This led Basolka to think about other experiencers and other people that she knew who had similar download-like experiences. And when she asked James where he got his creativity from, he said, quote, Usually I lay out the most recent problems I need to solve in my head, sometimes before bed. I think of all the possible parts of the problem that I can. What is the question? What would the perfect answer enable? And what is the practical answer? What pieces of things could possibly go into making the answer? Then, I just ask the subconscious processes in my head, which I laughingly refer to as little elves, but I don't know what they are. I used to think that they were some version of the subconscious process that help you navigate a room of people while talking to a friend or trying to avoid an overly chatty colleague at a party. Call them anything you want. Either I wake up with the answer, or out of the blue it just pops in my head in the next few days. More often, just after walking. And I know I'm not alone in this, but the point is, there's a process, and I think it can be trained. I'm beginning to wonder if the information comes from somewhere else at times, because for the life of me, I can't figure out from where the inspirations arrive sometimes. I seem to be given a part of the puzzle for a problem to which I did not previously have access. Before the meeting in the desert, Pasolka introduced James and Tyler via email, and, as she had anticipated, they hit it off. I mean, what else would you expect to happen when you introduce two alien-loving nerds together? And by the time they actually went to the desert, Tyler and James had already been working together for some time. When the results from the artifacts they found came back, the results, according to James, made it hard to believe that they were made on Earth. Quote, in fact, He said he wasn't sure, given their structure, that they could be made anywhere, and certainly not on Earth in 1947. That's how weird they were, and how they defied conventional explanation. They were just anomalous. James's analysis further deepened and justified Tyler's belief that a crash had happened there. James, on the other hand, didn't know what the objects were other than that they were very strange. It didn't matter if the materials were from a crash or if they had been planted there by someone else. Their anomalous nature made them worthy of investigation. Quote Having studied religion for many years, I can offer the following observations. First, here are two eminently credible people, scientists no less, claiming that there are artifacts whose province is truly unexplainable. This amounts to having the testimony of credible witnesses, which is pretty much what one finds. In the first written documents of Christianity and Buddhism, the Christian Gospels are the testaments or testimonies of credible witnesses, the apostles, which is a Greek word that literally translates as those who are sent or messengers. Second, the credible witnesses are attesting to something truly unexplainable, truly anomalous. In religious studies, this would be a miracle, either a miraculous object or a miraculous event, such as a healing. So, with this, Pasolka argues that places like Tyler's site operate as sacred locations within the religion of UFO events, and by relation, the religion of technology. As for her thoughts on the object in question, she believes that they are anomalous, but stops there. She doesn't know where they came from, if they were from a crash or a gift, and she doesn't guess at their origin, but the artifacts do exist, and that's what matters. Quote, One thing that UFO events and religious experiences have in common is that they don't begin as UFO events or religious experiences. They become UFO events and religious experiences through interpretation. Most every experiencer that she met upon having their experience did not jump at first to UFO. They thought it could be a weird airplane, a balloon, a secret government project, or something else. The same is true of religious experiences, which most who have them first are expressing deep confusion about what they had seen or heard. An example is found in the book of Samuel. Samuel was asleep when he woke up to a voice calling his name, over and over. When it happened a third time, he interprets the experience as God talking to him. Theologian Ann Taves proposed a method of understanding how events become religious events following a multidisciplinary study incorporating cognitive science, sociology, and history. She found that, since childhood, we are trained on what to see and what not to see. For example, the famous video of a basketball game during which a man in a gorilla suit is seen walking across the frame. Most people don't even see the man on the first viewing, as it's not what the viewer expected to see. Furthermore, she found that images presented on a screen, be them real or not, are often embedded in the head as memories and can hence warp one's view of their own past. In other words, what we see, we tend to believe. And to tie it all together, Jacques Vallée once told Pasolka, quote, trust no one, do not even trust what you see. And with the rise of technology comes the rise of fake UFO sightings, photoshopped videos, and cleverly edited internet hoaxes. And for some, it has become their job to debunk these videos. From a gentleman named Scott Brown, this has become his whole life. He manages a group called In the Field. This is a group of trained videographers, photographers, and graphic designers who put their skills to use trying to capture the phenomenon on film or to identify others' photos or videos as authentic, because the gods know that there are a ton of fakes out there. Carl Jung, when commenting on the UFO phenomenon, noted that they aren't very photogenic. And seemed to dodge the camera often this led him to believing that they were akin to a psychic projection or a mass rumor that had taken on some sort of outward expression however since the 50s it seems that the ufos have become less camera shy however young still laid out the framework for how to approach photo evidence of a ufo his method began with first denying that there was a real ufo reasoning that as they defined common logic One should first see them as an extension of the human psyche jung then introduced the idea of amplificatory interpretation meaning that when the ufo is first seen the first reaction is confusion as we don't have meaning to associate to that symbol religions work because its adherents believe them to be the truth even without evidence it is not about belief but about knowing Modern media has adopted Jung's approach, often speaking of a UFO as a mystery or a maybe rather than a reality. The old refrain of I want to believe forces it to be a topic of belief versus disbelief rather than one of truth versus religious truth. And the truth, under this framework, is out there. But it's not here yet. Every experiencer that Pasolka interviewed reported that, following their experience, they all had a book encounter. At some point, they were given, came upon, or felt otherwise directed to read a book that put their experiences into perspective, like a book that turned the wheel of their brain and made everything just make more sense. For Tyler, it was Carl Sagan's book. For James, it was a John Mack book. And in each case, the book that they found helped them contextualize what they had experienced by placing it within a certain framework. This doesn't mean that you read a book and become so enthralled with it that that one book's view becomes your whole view of the phenomenon? No, of course not. Everyone will develop their own ideas and build upon the ideas that kind of sucked them into this world. And whatever book that you add your encounter with puts the phenomenon just into context. And sometimes that context, at the end of the day, is both religious and UFO. Biblical UFO studies is a subsection of ufology which interprets these events as both a UFO event and a religious event. This idea has also been voiced by some theologians, who noted that the aerial phenomenon in scripture is a rough equivalent to the modern UFO phenomenon, so much so that some priests and scholars have even suggested that the Bible is in fact a record of humanity's interaction with extraterrestrials. And in addition to a book encounter, Pasulka noted that many researchers like George Hansen, Jacques Vallée, and John Keel, whom she didn't mention but I will, have pointed out the more trickster element of the phenomenon. By its nature, it tricks and deceives, often seemingly with the goal of validating what the researcher already suspects about the true nature of the objects. And synchronicities aren't unique to ufology either. Christian communities and other religious sects often view them as divine guidance or having another such supernatural origin in alignment with their existing context and worldview. But, nonetheless. It cannot be denied that once you start looking into this, the synchronicities seem to, well, pop out of thin air. And with that, we're going to go into our second discussion question. Hooray! Sorry, that was the longest section.
2: Okay.
1: I mean, I understand why. There was a lot of ground you covered right there.
0: Yeah, it made sense to go to put the chapters introducing James and Tyler together and then also, I didn't want to write a question about James and Tyler, so I threw in the next chapter, too. Yeah, which,
1: yeah. by the way, for our viewers, listeners at home who are not may not be aware, those are pseudonyms. Yes. Although, yes. Uh, I'm not going to out him here because, again, I don't, he's never made a comment if he's okay with being out it, but he, Tyler D.'s identity was found. Uh, Correct. It's available online if you go searching for it uh, because the people found his name on the Vatican visitor logs from when uh, Pasolka went there.
2: Yep
0: which we'll get into, the Vatican thing. But, so with this question, discussion question number two, I kind of have two questions. One is very easy, and I just because I'm curious, uh, and that is, what do you think is the book that would, would be considered your book encounter? If, as she says, we all have one that is the book that kind of flung us down the rabbit hole or helps align our basic framework of the phenomenon. And then for part two of the question, what do you think it is about the phenomenon that makes it so once you start looking into it, and this seems to be with anything, not just UFOs, but what is it about the phenomenon that makes the synchronicity start to happen? Why is it that when we start to dive deeper into this, that these weird coincidences seem to ramp up?
2: I don't really think I've had a book encounter. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't. I don't really think that I've had a book that's made that's made the things that I've experienced kind of click into place because a lot of the stuff that I've, that I've had has been, you know, my, my brushes, my personal brushes with the paranormal have been ongoing, but rather slight and non-concrete. And I think the closest to a book encounter would be, um, would be a walk in the shadows by Rick Setter, but my experiences with Swan do not align precisely enough with what shadow people are supposed to be to the point where I don't really consider that a book encounter. I still don't fully understand the greater context of Swan, of what Swan is or why she's here. I'm
1: curious, would you, I mean, going beyond book encounter, because I mean, she goes over the house, sometimes it's other forms of media I know you in your childhood ingested a lot of like you know the bad uh you know like a haunting or haunting television shows. Childhood,
0: that shit still happens. Well, yeah, but would
1: (laughs) would you deem any of those to be something like a book encounter?
2: No. Okay. Yeah, I yeah I don't I don't think I've had that encounter yet. And as for. I'm not even sure if the the synchronicities, I'm not even sure if that's something that the phenomenon is doing or if that is simply the way that the human brain processes information of, you know, the, the, the constant joke of it's like if you have a green car, all of a sudden you're seeing green cars constantly. I, I think what's happening with us is less that the phenomenon is providing synchronicities. And more that once we begin this journey into discovering these things and researching these things and ser- and genuinely opening our minds to the phenomenon, we just become more capable of seeing those things. I think it's much, I think personally that it's very likely that those synchronicities and those odd events were always happening it was just that they got filtered out or we didn't notice them or we didn't understand why they were significant and but once we sort of cross into that into the rabbit hole into that new framework of thinking we we start to know what we're looking at and we start to know what to look for to the point where we're capable of seeing those things
1: yeah i, I like that yeah no i i uh, my I, my thought process is very similar i mean all right, so to answer the question, um, I, I, I did have something that I would call a book encounter. I, it was a long, long time ago. So I was a kid, right? I saw the UFO that I saw that I then promptly forgot about. And about a year later, because I mean, you, I literally speaking, after I finished seeing the UFO, after it left, I stopped thinking about it. I, it didn't come into my head. But about a year later, there was one of those scholastic book fairs that Mm -hmm. came to my school, uh, which, you know, was a great excuse to uh, take a bunch of money from my parents and go buy a bunch of books. And so I and usually uh, books were kind of one of those things where I could get away with asking for money for it. Because they wanted me to read.
0: I really... That is one of the, my saddest memories of high, of school, not high school, of school, is I always wanted to get books from those fairs, and my parents almost never... I think one time they gave me money for it, and I was allowed to get one book, and the amount of money that I had was only really enough to cover, like, one book. I'm, I'm sorry. No, I know. It just, made, it just made me a little sad. It is what it is, you know?
1: But anyway, uh, about a year later, I did... I do remember coming across this because I remember when we were packing a couple years ago, uh, packing up some stuff from my parents' house to move into uh, this house, I I came across it again. This little tiny uh, hardcover first-time UFO hunter's guide. Uh And inside, it had had like three sections. The first was a very high-level overview of some UFO sightings, Betty and Barney Hill, uh, the Lonnie Zamora sighting, things like that. And then it went into, well, here's what you do if you see a UFO. Note the time of day. Note the wind direction. And, like, all that stuff. And then the rest of it was blank pages to fill out your own UFO reports. Neat. But I remember coming across that, and I, even though I wasn't able to actively remember the UFO I'd seen, I remember buying it, and, like, it was the first book I saw on the shelf. I remember snatching it up, and it was the first one I read of the stack I found. And that was not the kind of thing that uh, attracted me at Mm -hmm. that age. So, I think that that would probably be it because definitely in my head, until we kind of got deeper into our research, that was you know I that was the base context that I ingested and through which understood the whole idea of UFOs. Now, granted, I would also say the X Files probably was part of a, a book, a larger con- a book encounter, I guess, influence on my subconscious context. Sure, because I remember watching that a lot when I was a kid. Uh, I'll say in terms of my modern understanding of, or I guess modern, modern inkling about what might be going on with the phenomenon, I would probably point towards, uh, I would probably point towards Mothman prophecies as, as, because I remember I did read that a significant time ago now, back when I was in college, but it did kind of prime me for getting into some of the stuff we got into here. Yeah. Uh, regarding synchronicities, I think I agree with Jay. I think it is simply a matter of perception. I tend to think that the paranormal is everywhere. It's happening around us right now, but we are mostly pretty good at ignoring it or not seeing it or forgetting about it. Uh, I can't, you know, who tracks how many times you, that something happens that's just slightly weird. You just kind of shrug and go, huh, that was weird. And you move on. You never think about it again. I think if there if I was to forward literally any other uh theory as to why that why that might happen again we go back to this whole idea of a participatory information universe right if every all if all points of space and time are connected because there is no past there's no future we're all living in an eternal now and that now is within this large uh, amorphous sea of points of consciousness it, I could see it almost being like synchronicities are a form of play or a form of communication with whatever is the larger universal unconsciousness. Like, Hey, you noticed something you saw between a crack. Well, you're going to notice this. What about this? Almost like it's trying to goad you to keep looking and to yeah. keep going to see wh- how far you're willing to take it.
0: So I, I honestly, I think it's kind of a combination of what of your little spitball theory and what Jay said, because I agree. Once you uh, start uh, looking or once you start looking into something or you, you start, you, you know, you, you learn about it, whatever. So my, the example that comes to my mind is um, something that I talk about all the time now that I ride a motorcycle. And that's uh, when we're growing up, our parents always told us to look both ways, right? Yeah. What is it that they tell us to look for? Cars. They don't say motorcycles. Second I went through motorcycle class, I saw motorcycles everywhere because I was looking for them now. I knew what to look for. And I knew and I, I know how prevalent and how common they were. But we are just blind to it until we were educated about it, or until I was educated about it. Now I see motorcycles everywhere. Literally, I could spot one from like my, like a mile down the road, just inside my vision. I'd know that it was a motorcycle coming just because I'm now more educated about what to look for, how, you know, and that they are as common as, as, as they are. And I think it kind of works the same way, but I think that there is another layer to it because I don't, I, if I read a book about UFOs and after that book, I still didn't believe I'm not going to get synchronicities. I don't think, and at least it's not likely. I think the odds are less because I'm in that more like skeptical mindset, Right. But if I read this book and I come out a believer, I'm going to start seeing it because I'm actively looking for it. I'm actively trying to find these things. So I think there's a level of belief that has to play into it for it to actually come. And I think that if we don't have that belief, even maybe the synchronicities aren't going to happen because, like you said, the phenomenon's not going to want to communicate with us. But if you do have it, they get ramped up because... It wants you to engage with it, like like we've said, uh, like you just said. So I don't know. I just think it's interesting.
1: Well, I mean, and you want to add another layer of complexity. We could go back to an idea we've brought up a couple times on this show that what if the entities you interact with or don't interact with really, uh, that's a reflection of where you're at mentally or spiritually in terms of that, you know, whatever you want to call it, your vibratory rate the refinement of your crystal soul uh-huh. all the you know the very new age terms we have to really address spiritual or emotional development uh-huh. so what if that is also part of it it's like it's not that the phenomenon doesn't want to talk with you what if it it's trying to communicate with everyone but you have to be willing to somewhat meet it at its level you yeah. have to be you have to participate in order to play.
0: Well, I absolutely, th- I absolutely, I think that's got to be a, a factor into it. Because if you're not interested, in, if I wasn't interested in in playing magic with you, Nick, I wouldn't play magic. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's that's a big part of it. I think. Uh,
0: no, so I agree. Yeah, yeah. No,
1: I I think that largely speaking, you get what you put into it. Uh, going back to something Jay said, input output. Yeah. Uh, If you are, if you are never putting coal into your furnace, it's never going to generate heat.
0: Right. Uh, as for the first part of the question here for me, a uh, book encounter. Well, I didn't read any books in this world prior to this show. So I think the honest. You're welcome. Uh, so, I, Yeah. So I think the honest answer is Mothman Prophecies for me. It's literally the book that started me down this journey. I had no knowledge coming into this, and I still reference it every time, or I still think about it every time I think about anything else when it comes to the phenomenon. So I think, I think Mothman Prophecies is the answer oh, for me. Oh,
1: those simpler times.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> those simpler times when we thought, hey, we're going to do a fun little podcast where we talk about weird books, and now here we are a year and a half in, And our sanity has never been more frayed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, maybe it's for the better. Maybe it's for the worse. Only time will tell.
1: I feel like that audio is going to get played back like at a court case somewhere down the line.
0: (laughs) Oh, God, I hope not.
1: (laughs) I really. Yeah, that is my goal for this show. Screw getting a viewership. Screw any sort of growth. I just don't want this show to become evidence in a trial. That is my goal.
0: <laughs> you know what? I'm I'm happy to oblige with that goal of not be having this uh, end up in a court case. If for no other reason than I dodged having to do too much in the way of court cases during my more troubling years. I don't want to do it now when I'm like, I don't know, trying to be responsible and shit.
1: Yeah, like I would be much more annoyed about the lawyer fees now than when my parents would have had to pay.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Anything else?
1: Uh, No, I think that I think that's it for that question.
0: All right. Let's move on. Fun fact. The movie The Conjuring, that, according to Andrea Perrin, got so much of the actual events that occurred wrong, Pasolka was called in to provide her expertise on Catholic culture on that movie. Now I just thought that was neat. It is neat. And as a super fun side note, I read that part not long after the What's Up Weirdo crew dropped their video about going to The Conjuring House, so that's interesting.
1: I've yet to watch that. I still need to.
0: It's good. It's fun. But according to Pasolka, while movies are fiction, they can still produce real physiological effects and shape one's beliefs about the world. They can shape and create real memories, and eventually we incorporate these things into our lives, minds, and bodies, and they can become us. She calls this the total recall effect. It goes beyond confabulation to the inability to distinguish fact from fiction. Quote, My research into urban legends revealed that when people watched movies about religious events, they often assumed that what they were seeing were real events, and they believed the movie events even if they were not historically accurate. The movie image trumped the historical record. Her work on The Conjuring helped her understand how media techniques influenced religious belief and published her findings in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, this work which coincided with the start of her work on the UFO topic. One such technique is the based-on-true-events strategy and the realist montage. The first is known to us especially regarding historic or religious historical films. The realist montage splices together different scenes to create a narrative. This often involves placing scenes from fiction alongside those from reality. And such a strategy is used in the ending scene of The Conjuring, where images of the real-life Ed and Lorraine Warren appear alongside the pictures of the actors. Another method of generating belief within fiction is to get cultural authorities to comment on the narrative. For example, with The Passion of the Christ, they invited in religious leaders, scholars, and theologians to a pre-screening and then promoted their reactions to it, which in turn created a buzz surrounding the movie. Neuroscientist Jeffrey Zacks explains that we form cognitive models for events, which can then get conflated, especially if two events resemble each other with another event, be it fact or fictional. This is also useful for propaganda. For example, the Alfred Hitchcock film Saboteur alerted and programmed Americans to be aware of and alert for Nazi spies among them. And more troubling, this is difficult to combat. One researcher showed in their studies an inaccurate historical movie. He warned them ahead of time that the movie contained bogus information and corrected them when they raised incorrect facts. These reduced the effect of the misinformation but did not remove it entirely. And according to her, this is only going to get worse as we move into more and more immersive virtual technologies. The inability to separate the film version from the factual version of events blending them together in a mix of real life and something entirely different, maybe even a new belief system. And in fact, this has helped generate the belief system of the UFO. Quote, A new era is among us, the era of fabricated UFO, which is also the object of near-universal belief. The fabricated UFO is the best example of how the mechanisms of belief, realist montage, the potential reality of an event, The reliance on cultural authorities, the splicing of digital characters into iconic historical photographs, and depictions of scenes from ordinary lives work together to create belief. Belief in UFOs is on the rise, and with it, UFO-related programming. The CIA's Robertson panel directly advised a campaign of misinformation and perceptive management be undertaken via media and fiction to control views of the UFO phenomenon. It advised the same kind of strategies modern filmmakers use to inject reality into their fiction. And UFO programs use technology to create artificial but realistic-looking depictions of UFOs, similar to other recreation technology that's used in TV productions. This is called specialist factual programming. And there are even production companies, like Impossible Factual, who specialize in doing just this using digital technologies to recreate historical events.
1: Recreate.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks to movies like Star Wars, UFOs and aliens have become a core part of our popular culture, and it's so popular that the lines between it being fiction and reality have been blurred, as shown by the website If Star Wars Was Real, which is kind of a tongue-in-cheek website that photoshops or collects photos of Star Wars pictures spliced into photos that look real. And then the rise of the Jedi faith, the Jedi faith in the movies becoming, well, an actual religion.
2: Also, the uh, fun fact about the movie The Craft, um, the people that were making that movie did not actually want to offend anyone in neo-pagan or Wiccan circles. Uh, they, that was actually their target demographic, so they didn't want to offend anyone. So they called in a bunch of like neo-pagan priests and practitioners. And they basically said, uh, uh what god should we be using for these little girls to be worshiping? And the, they were basically told, oh, it, you should probably just make one up. And they said, oh, okay. And they made up a god, which is now the patron god of multiple strains of neo-paganism. Neat. Yeah. It's a real god now.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. Well, this Star Wars faith is called Jediism, which is a bad name. Yes, it is. But nonetheless, they claim that George Lucas based the force off of other religious philosophies, such as Taoism and Zen Buddhism, which is true. Because it is based off of those and they are considered religions, then offshoots inspired by them should also be viewed the same. And to that, I don't disagree. And many have studied this kind of effect and believe that, if the folklore is true, it can still produce real-world effects for its adherents. That studying these religions that openly advertise their invention informs how existing religions formed and how technology is shaped and is shaping religious belief. Quote, My interpretation is somewhat different. Jediism exists within a milieu of beliefs and practices about extraterrestrials, galactic visitors, and UFOs that posit their realism if not as a contemporary reality, then as a future one. They are as real to some people as gods, Jesus, and various Buddhas. Many UFO religions fall back on cultural authorities' claims to future developments, like NASA's confidence in finding alien life in 30 years, and to the physical objects or relics reportedly left by the UFO craft. These factors form a belief system which interprets or even replaces traditional belief systems. We live in a world where these faked fact-based productions are beamed into our brains so constantly that they become real memories and are integrated into our cultural and societal folklore. Quote, We cannot understand this development within the conceptual frameworks of the real and the unreal, or the humans and the gods, or even the body and the mind. We must understand it as its source, from within the screen itself. Technology scholar N. Catherine Hales argues that humans evolve with our technology, a process that she has dubbed technogenesis. By our use of them, we, in a way, merge into them in a complex relationship. Some even speculate that this will eventually lead to posthumanism, where we evolve ourselves into some new technological state. Quote, The phenomenon has a technological basis but we cannot ignore the fact that the emotions it generates in the Witnesses are religious in nature. Jacques Vallée. Pasolka goes on from here to dive into Vallée's The Invisible College, which focuses particularly on Catholic history, a topic in which she is very familiar with. Starting with the debate about the reality of purgatory, is it a place where imperfect but not evil souls go upon death while they were purified before ascending to heaven? Well, During this debate in the 12th and 13th centuries, where some claimed to have had contacts with the dead that are currently in purgatory, and those contact leaving physical marks like burns on the table, they developed the idea of a mind-body dualism, where the mind or spirit is separate from the body and as such is immaterial in nature. Much of this same conundrum is found in the phenomenon and has led to the nuts and bolts versus woo schism that we have today in ufology. And this divide is complicated by the fact that, as Valet found, UFO witnesses will report different things depending on who is asking the questions. This happens so often that Jacques noted there were two data sets, one that feeds government and scientific knowledge of the phenomenon and one which feeds the public perception of the phenomenon. And the fear of public ridicule is what keeps these two data sets separate. Quote, The absurd keeps the phenomenon hidden and on the margin of legitimate society. The same kind of dual tradition can be found in Catholicism as well, with the Rosary, Prayers to the Virgin Mary, often seen as conflicting with traditional Catholic doctrine. The materialist ufologists believe that, in time, their shunning of the psychic, weird, and subjective components of the UFO mystery will lead to mainstream science finally accepting and embracing them. Valle does doesn't think so, due largely to the other part of the UFO mystery. Comparing to early Christianity, which started as a submersive underground belief system that ran against the elites at the time, it was a counterculture, deemed too absurd for the great thinkers of the time, and it stayed this way until Christianity erupted into a state religion, driven largely by the media technologies, the art, the iconography, and the printing press. Additionally, the appeal to slaves, women, and non-citizens allowed it to seep through Roman culture as a mounting counterculture until it inevitably consumed it. These absurd elements helped early Christianity to remain invisible. The same can be said of the UFO phenomenon, with the encounters containing absurdity seemingly just to ensure the story will be ignored by the upper layers of society, while at the same time injecting said story into the collective unconscious of the population. These absurd elements of the UFO could be something meant to take us out of our rational mind to allow the experience to penetrate more deeply and in a way subliminally infect the reality of or unreality of the phenomenon. George Hansen in The Trickster and the Paranormal highlights these elements of paranormal phenomenon he argues that these phenomena are fundamentally destructurizing by nature and work to blur boundaries and understanding. And this may be why belief in the paranormal increases whenever societal instability is on the rise, which, ironically, we have talked about during the Amy Bruni book when we were talking about ghosts. And with that, we're going to move into our third discussion question. So there is so much... Paranormal TV out there that it is honestly hard to find something that is of good quality. But when you do find something, it's hard to tell what is genuine and honestly what's a shock doc. So, if these kind of media do impact how the societal evolution of the UFO phenomenon or UFO religion will get to the masses, is it then? ethical, or moral to show these recreations that are likely not at all accurate to the reality of what was seen? Is it okay to show something that may or may not have happened and present it as real, knowing that this could impact how many, many people actually view this actual phenomenon?
2: Uh, I think the line there is presenting it as real. Um, I think OK, it's it's a very complicated question because media has a lot of influence and uh, ma- producers of mass media do need to take some degree of responsibility for what they are putting out there. But I feel like as Americans, we have allowed audiences to become entirely too passive and a certain amount of that responsibility does fall on the audience. Now, again, I want to clarify that if they are falsely presenting something as real while deliberately manipulating the facts, that is a lie and they should be held responsible. But quite frankly, if you are watching a Oscar winning biopic that is allegedly the story of John F. Kennedy's personal life and it says based on a true story, There is a certain amount of responsibility that you, as the audience, have to understand that you need to separate TV from real life. And you have to understand the difference between an investigative journalist piece that is taking a look at a historical figure and an Oscar winning biopic that has based on a true story at the beginning. Like, we're not children being herded into an elementary school classroom we're adults who are knowingly clicking on a movie to be entertained and yes those things and 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 again i don't like shock docs i think things need to make i think if something is completely made up and purely for entertainment or if things contain large amounts of speculation that needs to be put on the tin like warnings on cigarette packs but Audiences need to relearn how to engage with things actively and critically, and people need to relearn how to do their own research and actually look at something with a skeptical eye. It's, it's very frustrating to watch Americans, particularly younger ones, just become passive consumers of information that they then just repeat without actually putting any sort of thought or independent research into it, it it, it it's just there it's the responsibility is divided. Uh media exists primarily for entertainment, and a lot of people need to stop getting their information, particularly their scientific and sociopolitical information, solely from TV and just blindly trusting in it.
0: I think the, the issue that we will stumble upon with that, well, I, I agree with you, um, is that there are a lot of TV shows out there, um, for example, Ancient Aliens, that will just put anybody on there. Yep. And they will present uh, whatever story as factual, as true, because this person is saying the story, and, not, and it's almost like they themselves don't do any research on the individual or, or on the story itself. And so all the millions and millions of people who watch alien, alien, uh, ancient aliens then see that, think it's true, even if it's a lie or even if it's fake, and then that m- continues to move the mythos of, of the UFO. So recently, I don't remember
1: uh, who had it on, someone put on the old Robin Williams movie Man of the Year. Yeah. And for those who don't know what that movie's about, it is about a, a, late, night, a, a night, late night show host who kind of jokingly decides to run for president, and due to uh due to a fault in a new electronic voting system, he wins mm-hmm. uh and there one of his various staffers is go uh who's played by Lewis Black is going on a rant in the middle of the movie about kind of the problem with modern political media, meaning where you have on the screen, you have two boxes and in one box talking, you have a point being made by someone who is, you know, a Stanford educated political theorist. They have, they have a bunch of awards to their name, a bunch of degrees to their name, and they're arguing one political point. And then the other box, you have cousin Jim who has just done about eight pounds of bath salts and is now making an opposing point. But because, both of their faces are presented as equal on the screen. Viewers deem them as equal. Right. And I think, I think you can make a similar argument that something like that happens with ancient aliens. You have occasionally you'll look on that show and you'll see you know pretty well-known ufologist faces or you'll see scientists, yeah. major, major scientists making comments. And then sometimes it's Ben Kissel. From last podcast on the left, like, and not to say he's not a smart guy, but there is a difference, and that difference is never really uh, advertised.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Which is why, again, those people need to be held responsible, and like I said, the burden should be the burden should be divided, and things need to be clearly marked if they're like if they're shock docs, if they're speculation. And quite frankly, the producers of ancient aliens are just manipulative liars. I completely believe that. I and mean, at, at
0: this point, they are, it seems yeah. like that they just well, I mean, I throw don't shit at the wall. I
1: don't know yeah. how, at this point how you'd keep a show about UFOs on that many seasons. Because we don't know enough. We don't know enough about what we're even looking at to... I to uh put together a television show that's gonna run for twenty seasons, right
2: and, and ancient aliens in particular likes to fall back on a lot of the um a lot of the more don't say the quiet part out loud aspects of western white supremacy, which is basically like damn brown people couldn't have built that wall without it falling down. It yeah. has to have been sky people, yeah, like that's M-
0: math has existed for a long time, people,
2: yeah. Now, I am the only one
1: who is allowed to stack rocks because God said that they're my rocks.
0: <laughs> my rocks.
2: My rocks! Yeah, so it, basically, I feel like the burden needs to be divided. People need to clearly mark if what they're doing is investigative journalism versus a documentary versus, versus you know, Oscar-winning biopic versus YouTube rant that you recorded while sitting in traffic but also, viewers need to pay attention to those labels, and especially if it is something that is confirming their existing biases or if it is something that is encouraging them to spend money or vote Republican, there needs to be... <laughs> be vote
1: any one party, to be yeah, fair. There
2: there needs to be... we We need to go back to expecting critical thoughtful engagement from audiences because it serves the capitalist overlords to turn us into passive consumers of whatever is put in front of us and media literacy is in my personal observation at an all-time low and it's just we we need to start holding ourselves as audience members to higher standards again
0: not not to um continue to drag the Republican party but um, a good example of that is Tucker Carlson's show. He has yes, literally yes. been used in a court of law to imply that and the statement was something to the extent of uh no like critical thinking person would take him seriously, but millions of people do. Literally millions of people do, and yet the court uh, court of law said, Yeah, you're probably right, nobody takes him seriously, but these motherfuckers do. They do take him seriously. And they knowingly still continue to put that fucking psychopath on air. So, I mean, I, I agree. I think that there is a, uh, 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 that we do, ha- like, we have to, we as a society have to be able to critically think and see through the, the garbage. But the problem is right now, they don't. They don't. And so how, what, do we, what do we do to continue to, to or to try and push you know, push out these almost terrible, this terrible rhetoric that's being spread about even the UFO topic and try to be like, listen, we don't actually know what's going on. These people are saying that it must be aliens that built the pyramids are clearly just racist. And, you know, we're, I mean, obviously we're doing our best by, with this show by saying those people are racist and yada, 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 but we don't have millions of viewers. Fuck, we don't hit a thousand in in a month you know so i i don't know i think it is a it's a hard topic when especially when the ufo narrative is evolving every day and these shows are still being are being produced in mass so it's almost it's almost uh overwhelming to try and overcome that the the kind of misinformation and disinformation that's being spread constantly
1: uh, yeah well i mean it so when in high school, I was very I was lucky enough to go to a well funded high school, um, and we did have a class which, to be completely honest, for the most part, I treated as a complete blow off. It was called life skills
0: because it was a blow off.
1: Well, there was things in there like uh, balancing a checkbook, identifying venereal diseases, which was a horrifying unit. Uh, but there was, uh, there was one on media literacy, and I, I now that I'm older, I greatly value. Uh, not really so much like what we were taught but having been made to understand that media literacy is something i need to pay attention to that like i need to be cognizant of where i'm at in relation to the media i ingest because i i mean like we've said before we it's so easy especially if you're encountering somebody who seems to agree with all your points to let them lead you into hell right uh you know it it could start with well i am i'm quite concerned about the fact that we have piranhas in our rivers, and then someone go, and then someone says, "Yes, I am too concerned about the piranhas in the rivers." But you know whose jo- you know whose fault it is. It's it's that it's that man who runs the fishery up the way, uh, Joe Edermeyer, and really it's his whole family, and really it's his whole it's his whole uh, ethnicity, and really it's everyone who lives on that side of town. They're responsible for right. the piranhas. You can you can and then yourself into becoming a fascist.
0: Yep. Oh, absolutely.
1: I I, I get which really just comes back to I I do agree. I think we need to get better at teaching our children media literacy to mm-hmm. understand that anything and everything you ingest uh, in terms of media, including, for the record, the show. Yeah, there is going to be an agenda there, even if it's not something that's directly planned for, because those people have their own opinions. They have their own particular worldview that is going to inform w- the information they share. Mm hmm. Um, and, and I mean, just for example, just earlier, I know that uh, several people in the room have had, or I know, for example, Rory, you've had bad experiences with the, with the Christian religion. Oh yeah. And we, we do, we make many mocking jokes about Christians on this show. It, yep. it it happens. I, uh, it's something that, you know, I'm not like, it's, it's not something that like I have any true malice towards them, but it's the easy joke. It's something yep. that we've internalized as part of, I guess, our humor base, the way we conduct conversations. And so that will, at the end of the day, influence the message that a potential listener might take from the show.
0: No, absolutely. And uh, for the record, I know we've said this before, I have no ill will towards Christians. I just don't like the way that I was treated personally by evangelicals specifically.
1: Yes, it's a similar reason why I don't like geese.
0: Yeah, probably. Sure. Okay.
1: They beat me up.
0: Well, geese are mean, so... (laughs)
2: I took an online test, and it said my daemon was a goose.
1: I could see it. Really, it, really it's because I'm thinking about that game where you play a mischievous little goose sneaking around fucking up a farmer's day, <laughs> and sometimes I feel like that's you. What? Like, you, you have after-hours time when no one else is awake, and you call them goblin hours. Yes! And that is a black box of mystery that my imagination can fill as I see fit.
2: I watch TV and I write fan fiction. That's what happens.
1: For all I know, you are doing goblin things. Goblin things. You
2: wouldn't know goblin things if they bit you in the chin.
1: Correct. I'm a goblin. I'm not a goblin.
0: Yeah, it's true. He's a bear. He is a bear. Bear Squatch.
1: Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's true. I started as a bear and I cross-classed into Sasquatch.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Bear Squatch. All right. We ready for part four? Yes. Yes. All right. Jacques Vallée noted that there are two types of UFO reports, those which are reported to authorities and those that are reported to organizations more sympathetic to the woo-woo experiences. And this is due, primarily, to the fear of ridicule. And it's important to understand that testimony in the legal sense, in which one is expected to tell the full truth without embellishment, is much the same as it is used in the religious context. Even in religion, as in UFOs, the credibility of the witness often becomes a sole point of contention in assessing their sworn testimony. Many of the scientist believers that Pasolka interviewed thinks that the phenomenon operates like technology, with the human being acting as the receiver and transmitter of information, and in that they've employed various methods, including quantum physics, to try and explain the relationship between consciousness and the contact experience. And sometimes we have one encounter that is interpreted two different ways. For example, a gentleman named Ray, an atheist turned believer in God, the afterlife in the spirit world, and his wife, Dolce. Their family dog, Nina, had become paralyzed. When they contacted the vet, they said it was probably due to a cerebral hemorrhage and that the dog would need to be put down. Dolce turned to her faith and prayed to the angels to cure Nina. And to everyone's surprise, they answered, When Dolce got up to check on the dog and carry her downstairs, she saw an object hovering four feet off the ground inside their living room. It looked metallic and like an upside-down U with two rings of light at the center. She kneeled to pray, asking it to leave if it was a bad spirit, and suddenly green lights began flashing on her. She panicked and yelled for Ray, who, a little misogynistically, thought that she had just seen a cockroach or something and ignored her for ten minutes until she literally came up and hauled him out of bed. But he didn't see the object. He saw an amorphous plasma floating in the air, something that he would later come to call a plasma being or a light being. Ray said that this whole thing was bullshit and turned around to go to bed, a response that he still doesn't understand to this day, but we here at Noctificent are pretty familiar with. He laid down and stared at the ceiling in a hypnotic state. After 15 minutes, it suddenly broke and he realized how strange the past half hour had been. He ran downstairs to find his wife celebrating. Nina had been totally cured. A few months later, Dolce reported seeing a huge blimp-sized UFO outside their home that, she said, had stained glass windows like a church. Later, on a visit to Mexico, she reported seeing several more UFOs alongside her family. She also saw three eight-foot-tall human-looking beings dressed in white robes floating in front of her. And Ray was also having sightings of his own during this time. One time, a friend of the family came to them for help with some traffic tickets. And Ray was outside waiting for a friend when, on a whim, decided to try to do as some people do and try to summon UFOs by thinking about them. He tried for 15 minutes with no results and, feeling foolish and borderline insane, he stopped and at that exact moment, he saw an enormous object appear above his neighbor's house. He said it was two to three city blocks in length and covered in hundreds of swirling white lights. He heard the voice of his daughter, though she wasn't with him, and it said, Daddy, next time that you see a UFO, please let me know. You and Mommy have seen a UFO, and I want to see one too. To which, he went and called his daughter outside, and she too saw the craft. And when their friends arrived, they also saw the craft and were flabbergasted. This led Ray to be consumed by research. Sparked from a YouTube video about NDEs which discussed quantum mechanics and consciousness, he devoured over 400 books on this topic. But he did this at a cost. He was neglecting his family. He wasn't going to work. He wasn't even going outside or really doing anything but reading. And Dolce was justifiably concerned. Ray, however, felt that these events were being orchestrated by the non-human intelligences. After four months, he felt he began experiencing a series of synchronicities. He began meeting people who had experienced NDEs and learned for the first time that his own father had also had one. Then, Ray experienced an out-of-body experience. After which he believed that he'd be given a mission to present to humanity the relationship between non-human intelligences, the spirit world, and the physics of consciousness. One morning after his out-of-body experience, he was in rush-hour traffic when he had a download experience. Quote, he said that he felt like he was inside a large spinning wheel with many spokes. Each of the spokes represented a particular anomalous experience, such as an NDE, a UFO contact, or an out-of-body experience. He later called these contact modalities. As he explained, each of them was a way that non-human intelligence interacted with humans. The core message was that humanity needed help to understand the true nature of consciousness, but that help was predicated on two things— It could not be about making money, and it required minimal ego. Through a series of introductions sparked by one Mary Rodwell, Ray eventually ended up in contact with Dr. Edgar Mitchell, who, with Mary and others, started an organization, the Free Foundation. Free believes in bottom-up disclosure, meaning it begins with the experiencer and bleeds up into society. With Mitchell, Ray started diving into quantum physics. For a long time, many in academia had forwarded that quantum physics may hold the key to understanding impossible phenomena like remote viewing, informational downloads, UFO events, and even the miracles of saints. One of her previous colleagues had previously been interested in stories of a saint who appeared in two places at the same time, and he suggested in a private email that the miracle may have roots in the quantum state of superposition— which suggests that two atoms and electrons can be in two places at the same time. And she found this interesting, namely in that biolocation is most often associated with acts of charity in religious texts. Such acts are, in classic philosophy, thought to be seen as acts which were divinely inspired. And given the UFO phenomenon's repeated messaging that we must cast aside ego, it all seems to align pretty well. Quantum physics, according to Mitchell, even provides a framework for understanding paranormal and supernatural events and abilities, namely the quantum hologram theory of physics and consciousness. According to this theory, Edgar says, information consists of patterns of energy. Information energy packets are given off by matter. On some level, all bodies of matter contain information. Ray's work, with Mitchell and others' help, argued that we must retire the dualistic mind-body separation. We must approach the UFO phenomenon from a perspective that embraces both the physical aspects as well as the spiritual, paranormal or psychic aspects, a message that we are becoming more and more familiar with. Reality under this framework is patterns of energy, and this operates with a dyadic model of consciousness. This would mean that mystical experiences are really just the receipt and interpretation of packets of information. For example, The feeling of oneness with reality reported in several mystical traditions, which is always accompanied by intense ecstasy and a loss of fear, is usually interpreted as a union with the Godhead. The dyadic model suggests that these moments are when the body and brain experiences its ground state, in which the difference between it and the rest of reality is dissolved. Feelings exist to be measured of the internal well-being of an organism. The feelings of ecstasy may arise from these experiences because they are suggestions that the experience should be repeated, and the seemingly supernatural abilities described in psi Phenomenon could just be expressions of quantum physics within a dyadic model. And let us remember real quick what the principal thesis of this book is. UFOs constitute a new form of religion one whose mythology has been delivered to the masses via various forms of media, and that no matter what a person may consciously believe, the data delivered through media enters our memory and forms the constructs through which we frame and understand our subjective experience. So let's talk about Tyler again. Because two years after they were in New Mexico, he and Pasolka went to the Vatican, and he underwent a large change. After getting past some struggles with his lack of being a theologian, eventually he was able to get into the Vatican archives. They came for two reasons. One, to help research on the canonization accounts of a saint and potential saint. She was invited by the church for this purpose specifically. While there, she also aimed to assess any historical records for ET life hidden within the observatory's archive. This included analyzing the canonization trial records of St. Joseph of Cupertino, the flying monk that we talked about in Real Magic, and Sister Maria of Agrita. They wanted to know why Cupertino was canonized, but Agrita wasn't. Quote, her biography said that while her body levitated, surrounded by a blinding white light in her small cell in the covenant, she experienced herself soaring on the wings of angels across the ocean and in space of what Spain called the New World. Levitation is also common within UFO contact literature, with many reported reporting being levitated from their beds with beams of light by craft. Now, during their time in the Vatican, they went to the Church of St. Sabina, where they saw a panel that showed Christ flying above a circular object, which some researchers take to be a UFO, while others think it represents a globe or a disk. And in another panel, the prophet Elijah is seen ascending into the heavens and in another, the prophet Abakuk is seen ascending as well. When she found those panels, she went to find Tyler to share this with him, and she found him in a chapel, kneeling and crying. He felt deeply that he needed to go back and help people, that he needed to be introduced to priests or nuns or anyone who could help him serve others because, regardless of his success, he felt like a complete failure. And over the time that they were there, Tyler absorbed all of the books and the talks that they went through. And he admitted that these experiences were transforming his understanding of the beings with which he had been in communication. His experiences in Rome had shifted his interpretive understanding of the entire phenomenon, and in doing so, made him feel more in touch with them than ever. Somehow, his innate connection with them had been supercharged, and at the same time, he also felt that he now knew less about who or what they were, or even what their intentions are. And Tyler's life seemed to have always had been spiritual, but he had never theorized about what the beings actually were. And that changed after the trip. And months later, he was invited to return back to Rome, where he took his first communion at a small mass with Pope Francis at the Church of St. Sabina, the same place that he said he first felt the Holy Spirit. And with that, we are going to go into our fourth discussion question.
2: Woo! Let's do it.
0: So... These last two stories, the one of Ray and the one of Tyler, are both stories about how UFOs brought someone back to their faith, or back to a faith, or to a faith, and in this instance, both to Christianity. Do you think that having something like a faith as a framework is necessary to being able to understand the phenomenon?
1: Um. Okay. So that's a very complicated question. Uh, I think if i had to say i think i think that yes not in the sense that you have to have one of the you know big name religions that's out there but i'm beginning to wonder if whatever the truth is uh it is so far beyond not just our understanding but our ability to understand that the only way we can kind of start to guess at the shape of what we're looking at is again it is by participating, by providing a context for it to exist within. Mm-hmm. Um, because more and more, a lot like when we're looking at visionary experiences or for our dreams, um these things are meant to be viewed metaphorically. In many ways, the spiritual experience was always meant to be viewed metaphorically. That's an idea we come across over and over again in ancient cultures, uh the Greeks, the Egyptians. Oh yeah. There was this understanding that what your spiritual experience showed you may not be literal truth. Right. It's it's suggesting to you ideas. You there's still more work to do. Um and I I think that what a religion may do for you is it gives a common set of metaphorical symbols and ideas that the phenomenon can then use to uh, engage with you in a sense, it's almost like you're selecting the language you want it to talk to you in. and all mm-hmm. of and, I mean, if this is you know again, we go back to if it's all one thing, the, the holy mountain that from Jack Preston King's book, then that makes perfect sense to me. It is, It is an expression of a single Force or thing that's beyond us, maybe the fundamental nature of reality itself, that is simply finding ways to uh, get our attention uh, on the on the level that we're prepared to receive it. Right. And so, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't think it's strictly necess- Well, I don't think it's strictly necessary to be part of a religion. I think it's necessary to have religious belief. Right. Uh, Just because. And there is a difference. Oh, there is. I mean, because here's the thing is that ultimately, and this is something I I came up when I was talking with a friend recently uh, who, you know, has heard all the all the various theories about uh, UFO stuff because I told them to him. And uh, still very much. He is still looking at it very much from the point of view of it is extraterrestrial races and i i mean he, i know him he grew up watching sci-fi that is exactly where i'd expect him to to arrive to so it wouldn't surprise me if let's say they're not et that doesn't mean that it's not they're not going to become et if they wanted to talk to him right they would they 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 come within the framework you provide because uh well if the subjective experience is all there is then they have to right that they in order to come into our field of vision they have to become part of our conscious experience
0: they have to if they they almost they have to somehow come into our vibra, vibrat, vibrational uh wavelength whatever something that we can see and then on top of that they have to be oh it's almost like they have to be something that we'd be willing to accept
1: god can you can you just imagine if it was if it was almost something like okay it's not that it it wants to talk to it wants to talk to jim so it becomes an angel because it knows Jim believes in angels. It is it is this amorphous force. It wishes to contact Jim. Upon approaching Jim in order to enter into, like you said, his vibratory length or his subjective experience, it is then forced into a costume change. Yeah. And what if something similar could be happening where... Uh, I think we've joked about this before, but like, you know, look what, me, look what you made me do. I'm coming to contact with you, and the only costume you're giving me is a demon.
0: Yeah. All right, well, I guess I got to be a demon. Now look what you made me do to you. Yeah, no, I. I absolutely. And also, like, it, it could be that they don't shift their form in any way. They don't change anything. They just come to us, and we perceive them as whatever we would be willing to accept in that moment. Yeah. You know, that would explain like Ray and his wife seeing the same seeing something but perceiving it two different ways. It's they don't they, they you know, they don't know, they don't choose. It's just whatever our brain our our you know, our reality is willing to accept in that moment.
1: Yeah. I I think that that er, I think that uh you know, like with anything obviously we're still highly in the uh the spitballing stage, but I think that that's speculation, but I think that that idea makes the most sense right now based off what we've read.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, I'm not sure if it's necessary to be able to interact with, perceive, understand the phenomenon. I think it certainly helps Mm -hmm. for all of the reasons that Nick listed, um, I, and and this might come down to the you know, more of the idea of the left brain right brain phenomenon of what what framework are you used to accessing. If you grow up in very like traditional folk Catholicism or in Mahayana Buddhism or in a family that practices voodoo, You're going to be more naturally attuned to things that are metaphysical or not rooted in concrete chemistry and math, whereas someone like my father is is going to really struggle to engage with things like that. I don't think it would make it impossible. Mm -hmm. I just think that there would be a lot more that that extension of the phenomenon would need to overcome in order to talk to him. Like, honestly, for someone like my father, uh, it would probably have to come to him as something that he understood actively as, oh, this is a hallucination. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not kind of like Philip K. Dick, um, being able to use his hallucinations to understand that his baby had cancer,
0: Mm -hmm. that
2: it's like I... So, yeah, I don't think that it's necessary because I don't think we understand enough about the phenomenon. I don't think the phenomenon in itself is concrete enough to have rules like that. But it probably makes it much, much easier and probably gives it a lot more options and opportunities for when it can come to someone like that. Whereas someone that has no religious or spiritual beliefs is going to be much more likely to just discard those experiences out of hand and not engage with them with the kind of effort uh, bordering on obsession that we've needed to dive into to kind of unravel our personal experiences here on the podcast.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think essentially the same. Uh, I don't necessarily think that Having a faith or practice is necessary, but I think you should. And the reason why I say you should is because you're going to be able to, one, you, you know, if what we're thinking is true, that it's going to present to you in some way that you understand or accept you are guiding, you're essentially guiding it within your own framework by saying, This is what I am willing to accept or what I would like to see or whatever it might be. But also, if it wasn't for studying more occulty things, like for me, Druidry and just the occult in general, like we do uh, on the show. Um, I don't think I would have as deep of an understanding of the phenomenon as I do, or at least of what I think of the a deep as understanding as I think it is. You know, in quotations, because it's all 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 things are pointing that direction, you know, in, in one form or another. That it's all leading back to the same path. Um, so if I was just studying UFOs and then therefore ignoring the more woo side of it, in my opinion, I feel like you're missing the whole point. You're missing the whole thing.
1: Well, I mean, I think also to add to what Pasulka is, is saying in this book, I mean, I guess, all right, so to go back to what I was saying earlier, I, 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 where I said I think you need to have religious belief, I think in saying that what, I'm, what I wanted to try to get at was that I don't know if you cannot as a human being, not have a religious Cor- belief. Because what I mean Correct.
0: I I, I wholeheartedly yeah, agree what, with What that. I mean
1: by that is it's ultimately what is the framework that yes. you operate under. Yep. Uh because, because we can't know what we can't know, even atheism is in my mind a belief structure. It, it is, is. It absolutely is. It is a worldview that uh predicates certain assumptions about basal reality that cannot be proven.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh we we have certain I mean, I'm sure there there are many out there who probably take uh See those as some fighting words, um, in which case please don't. I, I don't like fighting. But uh, beyond that,
2: it is a culture that has uh, that has symbols, that has moral edicts. That, depending on which group you join, may actually have a list of commandments. Uh, it has speakers and thinkers that, in their death, are elevated to something akin to sainthood, and they also have people that are reviled as villains and so yeah absolutely i grew up in i grew up steeped in this community it is absolutely a fucking religion yeah
1: well and i I guess when i come come back to it okay let's say far out on the limb let's say that what we've been reading about in esoteric philosophy and quantum science uh in dean raiden's book in jack's book and most of the books we've read that the subjective experience is ultimately the totality of reality. That mm-hmm. we we are we are a conscious ex- experience of consciousness, and this is all basically a, a mental hologram that we we are creating. Um, in that case, the uh, we of course we're we're seeing different things when we see these objects because there is no there, there is no object to perceive. It is an interpretation that we each have of some sort of far more nebulous force mm-hmm. it's not it, It's not something that you can that's real in the sense that this table might be real. It's real in the sense of the way that thoughts are real yeah but granted in this that in that uh you know uh, worldview, the table is a thought, but it's a much more solid thought.:
0: you know what I, I just had an interesting thought, and I don't know how much uh wait to give this thought but so my mind i don't know why but my mind went to star trek with what you were talking about and what if the phenomenon is like q
1: i mean i think q is is probably one of the best pop culture representations of an ultra terrestrial that i've ever seen
0: yeah and that's kind of what i was thinking because even his magic seems to be um you know, it's subjective based on whatever's happening and he just changes reality, this, that, the other, what, whatever. But I don't know. Every instance I've seen of Q made it, like thinking about it now has made me think a little bit of the phenomenon in a lot of ways.
2: Well, Right down to he doesn't understand how his own powers work. Like right. in that one episode where he was stripped of his ability and he said something about like, just make the thing lighter. And they're like, "What are you talking about?" And he's like, "If I wanted an object to be lighter, it would just be lighter." And they're like, "Do you you change the atomic structure? You change the gravity?" And he's getting frustrated. Like, "No, it would just be lighter." Yeah, it's
0: it, it would just be that because that's what I wanted or whatever. Uh, I don't know. I I, I don't. I, I I'm gonna end up mulling that over more. But I just had that random thought while you were talking. It's like. The phenomenon does seem to act a lot like you sometimes. Yeah, no, and I
1: I could definitely see that.
2: There's every possibility. Gene Roddenberry, Red, John Keel. There is every possibility of that.
1: Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. It wouldn't
2: shock me in the least. I mean,
1: it's the right era. And quite frankly, there there are periods of history uh, where the Venn diagram between people interested in UFO and sci-fi nerds was a circle.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. No, for sure. All right. Ready to go in the last section? Let's do this.
1: The final ride. And
0: it is real quick. Oh. For our final section, let's go back to the artifact that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. The artifact taken from the New Mexico site was analyzed, and it was concluded that it was anomalous the scientists said it couldn't have been made here on Earth or maybe even in this universe. In other words, they had no idea and they were comfortable with that ambiguity. James always told his students not to ignore anomalies as that this is where discoveries are made, an idea also voiced by Thomas Kuhn, an advisor to John Mack when Mack first brought his research to him. Religion has two aspects. One is the functional aspects Scripture, churches, and oral traditions, and these can be easily studied. The second is the sacred, being a sacred event or a sacred entity. And this is the object of belief, and it is often so mysterious that it cannot be studied objectively. Quote, One cannot put an angel under a microscope. It is this aspect, the mysterious sacred, that distinguishes religion from other organized practices like sports or fandoms. In religions, one finds the inexplicable, sacred event, or mysterious artifact. One time, Tyler told Pasolka a story in relation to the artifact from the New Mexico site. He had put it in his bag and then went to dinner with a friend. The next day, that friend had messaged him to say that he had dreamed of Tyler's backpack, that, in the dream, the backpack had contained a whole separate universe. And when he asked Pasolka about this, she brought up something that Whitley Strieber had told them that when we study artifacts, they also study us. She thinks that there is sort of a symbiotic relationship between the artifact and those near it, that it generates information that some can detect. The mystery of the artifact compels religious belief and inspires those who interact with it. Quote, Even more disconcerting to me than the mystery of the anomalous artifact was the level of belief produced by media representations of UFOs. I saw media professionals use the mechanisms of belief to push a story that was, at times, very far removed from the event that inspired it, and yet it was believed by millions. It was this that was most concerning, as I came to understand the extent of the influence, and thus power, wielded by the media in regard to belief in UFOs and extraterrestrials. And toward the end of her time, when she was in the archives, she came upon a book by Carl Sagan and a Russian astronomer. And in the opening line, they wrote, the prey runs to the predator. Referring to the fear that if humans meet life out there, it may not be friendly. But Pasulka understands it differently now. She relates it instead to our relationship to media and technology. Quote, As philosopher Martin Heidegger had predicted years earlier, technology would bring about a new era, an era as much dominated by technology as the medieval era had been dominated by God technology and its effects would be misunderstood. In this misunderstanding, Hedger argued humans would face a great and potential very destructive crisis. In Heidegger's last interview, the German magazine Der Spiegel asked if philosophy could prevent such a negative outcome. Heidegger answered, only a god can save us now. And with that, we'll move into our final discussion question.
1: Hooray! Ominous frickin' point.
0: So what do we think? Is technology and media driving the new UFO religion? And if it is or if it's not, either way, how do we think that with media and technology driving the way, how do we think it's going to impact the global society as it evolves and changes?
1: Um, is media, impa- media and technology impacting belief in UFOs? Absolutely. Uh, I think that there is some very compelling arguments to be made that the modern technological interpretation of UFOs, like she suggests in this book, is largely driven by the modern technological age. Technology has become our magic. It is the means by which we are conquering our reality, and so we wish to view everything in that framework. Right. Uh, Because, again, if we make it into technology— we're making it into something that many people, many, many people feels is the unique purview of humanity. We're rendering it safe. Right. Um, so absolutely, I think that that is a part of it. And I think it bleeds into our science fiction. And I mean, it also, in a, in a sense, it bleeds into certain social movements we've seen. I mean, there's been, for example, we have the, the quote from Ronald Reagan about how, how, thinking about how uh, easily the world's issues would vanish in the face of an of an outsider, of an alien threat. Right. And I think that there is, for, for some people, there is kind of this belief that there cannot be world peace unless we have that. Uh, you know, unless there is another, because we need someone to war against. And in a way, that almost perpetuates the same ongoing cycle of violence.
0: You're not wrong.
1: And I mean, beyond that, We have these, uh, our fiction has us dreaming of space operas of taking our firefly class ship out into the cosmos, you know, and those dreams directly impact the technology that is developed, the projects we work on, what we're aiming for. We've noted it again and again, science fiction has a tendency of becoming science fact. And so absolutely, I think it's dramatically tied up with, uh, It's dramatically tied with the future of our species because it's going to shape uh, our technological progression. And right now, technology is the most powerful tool at our disposal because we see these UFOs and we start applying the context of, well, that's not a spirit, as maybe people in the past might have seen. That's not a god. That's a physical craft. That's something that someone could build. And if someone could build it, I can build it. Right. And that's going to eventually lead to trying to do so. And that, I mean... We, how many times we brought it up in various ufo books we've read that like any one of the various technologies that goes into allowing these ufos to do what they do that is not just world changing it's paradigm changing it's yeah. it's it's change on such a terrifying level that we cannot really conceive of it yeah uh and so yeah i mean i think absolutely at the end it's undeniable in my opinion
0: yeah i would agree
2: um, yes, I absolutely believe that uh media and technology are driving the UFO religion. I believe that I do not think the UFO religion would have grown into the into what it is, as in like kind of a more or less unified subculture. And yes, I know there's lots of division, but it's a unified subculture. Yeah,
0: like, there's also know. a lot of division within Christianity. So yeah.
2: Exactly. You you people have more in common with each other than you like to admit. Mm-hmm. Meh. You know exactly what I mean by you people. <laughs> uh, I do not believe it would have grown into a unified subculture if we did not have the sheer amount of television shows and internet chat rooms and YouTube channels dedicated to it that we currently have. Because we have these people that are basically these these prominent figures within the ufology community that without television shows and the internet would have most likely been isolated to their small town or they would have needed to travel and put out newsletters. But now they can reach every corner of the globe without ever leaving who gives a fuck Wisconsin. And... So and that is kind of that's that's what allowed Christianity to become what it was is Paul left Jewish communities behind and became actively proselytizing to goyim and that was what allowed Christianity to begin spreading through the Roman Empire and eventually become a global force and I think a parallel phenomenon is occurring with ufology.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: And as for how And do you mean how is the media and technology going to impact the globe or how is the UFO cult going to impact the globe? Yes. Both.
0: Whichever one you prefer or both.
2: I think that focusing on ufology as a religion, I think that at least for a lot of Americans, as it grows into a more mainstream phenomenon, there's going to be a bit of a reckoning with people having to learn that they just have to let other people and I'm not saying that you fall I'm not saying that UFOs aren't real I'm just speaking about those people that are currently very deeply invested in making everyone else think they aren't real I think we're going to have a bit of a reckoning with trying to get those people the the naysayers the dissenters to understand that hey sometimes you got to just let other people be wrong because this is not going away. This is not this is not something that we are going to globally talk each other out of. This has become a new religion and I don't think it's going anywhere and there are a lot of people who are very 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 angry about that because I see them constantly on Tumblr. Yeah. And uh-huh. yeah, and also I'm sure you guys see them constantly on other social media and it's it's one of the things that I liked the least when I was an atheist is that deep investment in talking other people out of their beliefs. And a lot of people seem to think that because ufology is not an internationally recognized religion, they're just allowed to be shitty to believers. And as people have to Begin accepting more and more of like, no, this is a religion. This is a religious, spiritual belief. I think that things might socially have to come to that, come to a head, and there's going to need to be a turning point, much like Mormonism, where it's like, this is just here now. This is just here now, and you're going to have to learn to live alongside it without being a fucking dick.
0: It brings up an interesting thought. Like, especially when you think about the similarities between like the fairy faith and really just about any religion and what we're seeing is the modern ufo r- religion the movement whatever um and you know we even culturally you see so many similarities between the stigma that's brought upon People that are inside the UFO myth and people that are outside of it too, like Christianity and and other things. Uh, it makes me like it all, you know, of course, we've talked about this before, but it, it makes me think about the fact that it's like, aren't we all essentially just saying the same thing just through a different lens? Right now, that lens that's come that's cropping up is UFOs. Previously it may it was. You know, it was God and the 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 Holy Spirit and Trinity and the or the Trinity and angels and this that the other thing, like, but it's all pointing in the same fucking direction, you know. So it makes me, it's like regardless of whether or not you believe that UFOs are the thing, you know, if you believe in, if you believe in God, even. And you're trying to do the same thing right now. This is just the framework that somebody chose to believe in to get to the same place.
1: I like how you put that. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Like it's it's no different than me being a druid versus, you know, somebody being a witch.
2: Exactly.
1: Well, and I think that I mean this goes into
0: uh I think where the larger
1: societal issues we have, or maybe not even societal, as a species, we're we're not great at. Um we like to feel like we're right. Yeah. Like we have a some special access to the truth. And if you say, well, no, all of these various paths are leading to the same place and it's okay. Everyone's on this journey. We're all on this journey together. It's like, well, then how am I the main character? You're not. Well, that I mean, but that's the point, yeah. I think. And I think that, I mean, it's funny when you look again at older esoteric lore, especially Hermeticism, uh, Gnosis, uh, and you go into Eastern uh, philosophies, Buddhism, Hinduism. And then you look into, say, psychedelic journeys. A very co- a common thread between all of them is ego death. Mm-hmm. It's about the again. It's about not just accepting you're not just the main you're not the main character. It's maybe even accepting that there is one character here. Like th- this is
0: we're all we're,
1: we are all part of this. We are all particles of water in the same river going to the same destination. Right. Except for those dumbasses over there who keep lapping up on the side.
0: Yeah yeah
2: and I think there's also a certain amount of desperately grasping for control mm-hmm. like i I encountered this earlier online is I saw someone going on a rant about like crystals don't have any special property yada 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 yada. And basically what it boiled down to is they were extremely angry and upset about the fact that people with serious medical conditions are being scammed by bogus faith healers Mm -hmm. into discontinuing actual Western medical treatments in favor of crystals. And I'm sitting here and it's just like, hey, asshole, me using aqua aura quartz to, I don't know, fucking soothe my anxiety is not the same thing as some asshole charging someone $4000 for Arizona quartz that is not going to cure leukemia. It's right. not the same fucking thing and it's it's like I know that you're upset that someone that people are being scammed like this, but crystals have been part of it it, it again if it's just like this is a religious belief, this is a spiritual belief and just because some people get taken in by scam artists, and just because some people are shitty bastards that scam other people doesn't mean you need to go on a one-man Instagram crusade to talk everyone out of their pretty rock collection. That's not going to stop the thing that you think it's going to stop, and you're just trying to make yourself feel like Batman busting up a drug ring. You're not. You're a jerk on the internet who's blocked now.
1: Well, and... And I think that that is, again, we we like to, uh, I mean, I've even caught myself doing this, and God knows I've caught both of you doing it, uh, where there's a problem. X problem is infuriating. Here is my sweeping solution that applies to all situations. Yeah. And uh, very often,
0: and I would say very often the
1: point of 100% of the time, uh, that solution is a bad
0: one. Yeah, Yeah, well, of course. Uh, But, and I'm going to say an unpopular opinion here. we, in my opinion, so I'll preface that in my opinion, uh, we as a global society cannot, cannot move forward until capitalism is dead.
1: I mean, I, there is something to be said for that. I mean, that's I'm not. Here's the thing. I, I see massive issues in capitalism. I've I see that there are some better options. I don't for the life of me know how to implement them. Uh,
0: no, that's for people much smarter than well, that, me.
1: And that's the thing. It's like, I don't know what's going to be better, but that it, it, there's a lot that's a, that's wrong right now. And I do agree from the point of view of as long as there is a motivation to bilk people, right? Uh, you're going to get kind of the new age or really just religious cottage industries of people cropping up to do so. Because I mean, it's not just new age movement with crystals. I mean, for a long time, the Roman church was letting you pay away your sins. Yep uh there there is a long and storied history of pouring money into your own spiritual well-being and i suspect it has never worked that's just a
0: suspicion i mean i would suspect the same thing and it's it goes it's everywhere literally uh, your favorite paranormal celebrity is very likely being uh being um like somebody is likely faking being them on instagram right now messaging somebody trying to get money
1: well, even if you go beyond that, because here's the thing it's even beyond uh, people being scam artists, existing within the model requires you to make money. Correct. So you have people who may say, Well, I just wrote a great book about the phenomenon and I want to share it. I think this is just information people should have. Well, I can put it out for free or. I can pay my mortgage and put it out for ten dollars. Right. That's not that. that and it's that, not even like that's it, not that, a decision not to be charitable. That's a decision made with a gun to your head.
0: Right. Because like the 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 reality of is it is all of this information, everything that we've read, everything that everybody should read, it should be free. Everything that we do really should be it should be free because everything else should be taken care of because we're fucking humans. And we are a part of the society, and therefore should be able to um, exist within it without having to suffer the cost, having to suffer for it. That being said, with the with the way that the world is now, that's impossible. It's giving something away for free is almost like creative suicide. Now, you know there are exceptions to that. Like for example, Hellier was a wild success, and it was given out for free, but I'm sure they made money elsewhere. You know, because you can't not, you know, with the, especially with the the new kirk's, they have the museum and they make money off the museum. They're on. Of course, they do. It's on Patreon. Yeah. But it's it is impossible within capitalism to not or within a society that's built around capitalism to not be sucked into it, because in order to survive, you have to be sucked into it.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I guess I mean, kind of get, taking it back to the original question here. I, I do still say, though, that there is going to be um, that regardless of if we switch our economic model or not, I think the UFO thing is going to continue to shape our future, not just in terms of technology, but in media and our mm. relationship with the cosmos. But I I, I do think, though, that uh, the relationship may be made very unhealthy by the influence of money and the need for monetary gain.
0: More so than it already is. Well,
1: and I think a great example of that, and again, this is me going off into speculation land, if anyone out there is a big fan of the guy, I think Stephen Greer is a great case study of this. Yeah. I, I, I like I was going to say, I genuinely think, if you look back at the citizens' hearing, hearings on disclosure, if you look back to some of his original works, he came off as very earnest. He was trying to do something meaningful and impactful. And over time, the cult of celebrity and the need for the almighty dollar eventually leads you to doing shitty things. And now every one of his documentaries, he's up there crying crocodile tears and pretending his life is so hard uh, for for reasons that are pretty nebulous, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and quite frankly, there's a lot of allegations, which I don't know if they're true or not, that he is at the point of faking his encounters that he's charging people three hundred dollars for. Right. If, m- if not significantly more, I actually think three hundred dollars is way a way outdated figure now, but I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I, I I don't I don't know. I just know what I've heard, and you know, taking it with a grain of salt. So, all right, I think that's it. Are we are we good?
1: Yes, I think we're good.
0: All right, let's move into the about the author.
1: Okay, about the author. So D W Pasulka also known as Diana Walsh Pasuka, is a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where she is also the chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion. Her primary research focus is the intersection between religious belief, media, and digital culture. She holds a Ph.D. from Syracuse University, an M.A. from the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley, and a B.A. from the University of California, Davis. She has authored and co-authored a large number of essays and academic papers, and she has also authored and co-authored three other books, including Heaven Can Wait, Purgatory and Catholic Devotional and Popular Culture, which is an examination of the concept of purgatory within the Catholic faith. She also co-wrote Post-Humanism, The Future of Homo Sapiens, which she co-edited with Michael Bess, and Believing in Bits, Digital Media and the Supernatural, which she co-wrote with Simone Natalie. She is president of the Southeastern Commission for the Study of Religion and is a co-chair of the American Academy of Religion. She is currently working in concert with the Vatican and the Esalen Center for Theory and Research on a translation project of the canonization records of St. Joseph of Coppertino. She worked as the history and religious consultant for numerous movie and television productions, including The Conjuring franchise. She has been the principal investigator for numerous grants, including the federal Teaching American History Program which supports middle and high school teachers in their efforts to teach religious and American history. She has been interviewed by the History Channel, Showtime, and has been featured on a number of popular podcasts, including Mysterious Universe, Coast to Coast AM, and The Lex Friedman Show. She is currently working on a new project titled Contact 21, which is a continuation of her research from American Cosmic. And that is it.
0: All right. Well. In that case, we're going to go ahead and move into housekeeping.
1: Housekeeping? Housekeeping.
0: So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform it is that you are listening to us on. And as always, if it is Spotify or Apple, please leave us a review. Five stars preferred, but not required. Uh, And if you say something funny, I don't know, we'll read it on air or something. Double horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't have any follow-up there, but if you want to... Uh, Send us a book request. You want to just communicate with us in one form or another. We have a few ways you can do that. First off, via email, noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. And then on Twitter, we have, uh, while it still lives, uh, we have at at noctivigantpod, and I am at MixRoryWicks. I am at BearishTerror. If there's a blue check mark, it isn't me because I ain't paying.
2: (laughs) I am at MidwestUndead.
0: And then we have a plethora of other social medias. We have a Reddit account
1: uh noctivian podcast
0: and a tumblr
2: noctivian podcast
0: and instagram which is noctivian underscore podcast and uh, i think that's it
2: that's it that's it
0: all right well uh, any final thoughts oh what's up next what's up next
1: next up we have dreaming ahead of time by gary lockman which is going to be an exploration of prophetic dreaming and how it relates to uh yeah, it's just prophetic dreaming. It's a prophetic yeah. dreaming and how it relates really to esoteric philosophy. Yeah. It's fascinating. My brain hurt. Yeah.
0: Quite 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 a lot.
2: I'm gonna tell a story about a really gross nightmare I had.
0: Mm-hmm. Looking forward mm-hmm. to it. All right. And I think that's it. So I guess I'll lead us out of here then. Please do. All right. Well, good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there.
2: Don't get lost.
0: All I'm saying is that it
1: wouldn't hurt you to get lost once.
2: No, but it will you hurt you if
0: you do them. get lost. Bring a buddy.
1: Yeah, bring a buddy. So you and, can eat them. And along the way, oh if you meet a flesh pedestrian, also known as a not deer, go with them. You never know. Could be fun.
0: No. No. While I believe Jay calling the UFO religion a cult is accurate, I can't help but not like it. Not that I'm a part of it. I just don't like, I just don't like the term cult. It makes me think Scientology. And that's bad. Cult's not bad. Or UFOs aren't bad.
1: The people of Heaven's Gate would beg to differ.
0: Well, that's why I said UFOs aren't bad. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. My brain just went there. Yeah. <laughs>